Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. I am excited about today because I've been excited about this series for a while. Several years ago, there was a book by the same title. We, we kind of stole some of their branding and uh, some of that, but really the content's kind of driven out of us and obviously God's word, but uh, really just captured our hearts about the kind of season that we find ourselves living in. And the subtitle of that book is, again, one of the things that we've kind of pulled into this series for us. It's this question that's confronted me over the last several weeks in preparation for these four weeks together. And it's this question, how do I stand firm and love well in a culture of compromise? The culture that we see ourselves in right now is a culture of compromise. It's a culture that would like for you to really shy away from truth and absolute truth and clinging to anything solid and firm and really just to kind of you know go as the wind blows which way you would go and what you would believe and what you would stand for and what you wouldn't. And so uh, how do we love well and stand firm? And what you need to know about today is that today is definitely week two of a four-week series, but today is also kind of part one of a two-part little series in the midst of a series. And so I want you to be here all four weeks, but I definitely want you to be here not just today, but next week, because these two are really joined together. It is the idea of loving well and standing firm. We do have to stand firm, but I also think that we have to do so in a way that's God honoring. A few years ago, I ran across a quote that my uncle kind of posted online and I, I quickly got, did a little screenshot and I've held on to it. And just about every year on like the anniversary, it pops up as like a memory of something that I took a picture of. And so sometimes I'll repost it on that year. But this is what he says. He's a pastor outside of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He said, your greatest challenge will come from those who believe exactly what you believe, just not as much as you believe it. That is the idea of compromise. It is the idea of, you know, often our greatest enemies are not going to be the people that believe completely contrary to what we believe. Often we already have up our defense mechanism for people like that. Often our greatest enemies are those who believe very similarly to what we believe, but they don't just believe it quite as much. And so then what happens is as we are in relationship with them, we tend to compromise a little bit of who we are and what we believe and what we hold firmly to. And so I think it's important for us to understand in a culture like that, what is it that we do? Well, I see that it's important for all of us to continue to grow. We need to continue to seek new information and a better understanding of who God is and God's word. I mean, there are things that I know about God's word now that I didn't know six months ago or six weeks ago. There are things that I I hope and pray that I will know about God's word six months from now that I don't know today because I wanna continue to grow. So it's not about kind of finding something and getting so set in that that we're never learning and growing and adapting, but there are two different ways primarily that we, we see change take place in how we think. The first of those is revelation. Revelation is really when, when you see things in a new way. You know, God presents new information or a new understanding. The Holy Spirit opens your eyes to new content within his word or a new application of that content. And so revelation is really seeing things in a new way. But the other side of that coin, kind of the, the flip side of that is rationalization. Rationalization is not seeing things in a new way. It's seeing things my way. It's not allowing God to speak truth into my heart. It's me justifying my behavior and changing what I believe so I don't feel as bad about what I've already done. 
And so then we look around us and we see how other people are behaving and we see what decisions other people are making and we begin to rationalize those behaviors, those decisions, those things. And so instead of revelation being God's truth, God presenting or revealing truth to us, rationalization is a distortion of the truth. It's just that little bit of what the serpent did when he was speaking to Eve in the garden when he'd say, well, did God really say that? And it begins to cause us to question and to doubt just a little bit of what God may have spoken to us or what God's word may be speaking to us or what the Proverbs talk about there being wisdom in the counsel of many. We, we begin to surround ourselves with, with counsel from people who agree with our already decided opinion. And instead of seeking wisdom from those who may challenge us and push us towards a greater revelation of God's word and truth, we begin to surround ourselves with people who would agree with our behavior so that we don't feel bad about what we've done. There's a difference in revelation and rationalization, and that's really where we find ourselves in the present age. And so I think as we read the book of Daniel, it's important for us to recognize what we are called to do. Now, I don't want to re-preach any portion of Pastor Trevor's message, but I am going to stay in Daniel chapter 1 for some of our time today because I think that there are other portions of this text that really can, can be illuminated in our hearts and really help us to understand how to love well and stand firm in a culture of compromise. Daniel chapter 1 is a, is a powerful part of an introduction to a great story that really helps us to understand great biblical truth. But I think it's important for us to remember that th they were not on a retreat like Daniel and these boys that we're about to read about, like this wasn't some like, you know, hey, we're gonna go on some type of expedition here. Like they were captured by an enemy of God's people. They were taken away, ripped out of their homes and taken to live in another land against their will. They saw the articles of the worship and praise to their God either destroyed or pulled into a temple of other idols and many other gods to devalue in the eyes of those around them who their God actually was. Some scholars say that Daniel himself was castrated when he was brought into this other land. This is not something to be taken lightly. Like this is a powerful picture of what it looks like to be brought into a place where you did not choose this and how should you respond? Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse three, we begin the first part of these two weeks together. So hang with me. Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse three, says this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Four young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I shared a message earlier this year where I talked about this passage and the changing of names, and Pastor Trevor did a great job last week doing that as well. So I'm not really going to go there at all, but I, I do want to reiterate what he said last week, that one of the great tactics of the enemy is to try to confront our identity to really challenge identity so that we are confused about who we are because then if we start with a confusion about who we are, then it allows us to be on slippery slope with everything about what we do. And ultimately, I keep coming back to this phrase that my wife has said to our kids for a number of years, this idea that you gotta remember who you are and whose you are. 
You've got to cling to your identity and you've got to cling to your relationship to the creator, to the father that, that gave you that identity. He vested that identity to you. And so you've got to remember who you are and you've got to remember whose you are. And when you know whose you are, it's harder to lose who you are. You gotta start from a place, a place of recognizing God and his relationship with you and his power to you. And when you have that relationship and that right standing, then your who, your identity is wrapped up in God and not the circumstances around you and not the tactics of the enemy to try to cause confusion about you. But Nebuchadnezzar, the king of this day in Babylon, he understood that identity was the starting place of compromise. He was trying to get these young men and others just like them. The reason that he chose those who were skilled and good looking and handsome, he was looking for influencers. He was looking for the people of that day who had the most Instagram followers and TikTok followers and Facebook friends and the people that could shout the loudest and and really create the greatest influence among these people that they had brought into Babylon. And so he gathers these people together and he changes their identity and then he begins to change the things that they would consume. It's, It's compromise, And so perhaps identity is not a compromise for you. Maybe that's not something in question. Maybe you believe that you know who you are, but there's something perhaps that you are tempted to compromise on. And I think for all of us, if we search our hearts, we could probably find pretty quickly that place of potential compromise in our hearts and in our lives. And Nebuchadnezzar understood that and he started them down this path. Because when you give in in one place, it becomes easier to give in in other places in our lives. The enemy knows that, and he's trying to find that soft spot. So let's keep reading here in Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. The first verse that we just read out of verse eight right there is that Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved. He decided in advance before he compromised himself, he resolved not to defile himself. And the challenge for me over the last few weeks as I've been reading over this material and kind of really preparing what God would have for us as a church family is what is it that I have resolved? What have you resolved not to do? Not to defile yourself. You've chosen that there is something that I will not do no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what people would say about me, no matter what, what, what punishment may come my way because to abstain from what the king has ordered for you could be a death sentence. But the guard wasn't necessarily concerned with these boys. They could be killed. He didn't mind. He just didn't want to get in trouble himself. But Daniel was standing firm. He had resolved not to defile himself. He had decided in advance Because in the moment, compromise is always justifiable, it would seem. Sin is enticing. The book of James in the New Testament tells us that we are not drawn away by the enticing of sin necessarily. We are drawn away by our... There's something on the inside of us. There is that flesh spirit that would draw us towards sinfulness and away from godliness. 
And so in the moment, we can almost always justify why it's okay just to do this little thing or just that, well, I mean, we're going to get punished, so we've got to eat whatever they lay in front of us, and, and we don't want to be killed, and maybe God would use us in another way to stand firm and do all. So, but Daniel resolved in that moment not to defile himself. He recognized that there was not just an external battle taking place to be able to stand up for what he believed to be right. And next week, we're going to talk a lot about standing up. But before we talk about standing up, let's figure out how we present that information. Because Daniel did exactly what I see most Christ followers doing. Once we resolve something, you know what Daniel did? He screamed it from the rooftops. That's actually not what he did. That's what we do. Daniel, according to what we just read, resolved, verse 8, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. He presented his decision in a way that it could be received. Because here's what happens. Once we resolve not to defile ourselves and we scream at the other person, we immediately put them on the defensive and the conversation is over. There is no ability to engage someone who disagrees with us or who may have opposition to what we think or what we feel because what we just did is we blasted them with our resolution. We've determined that this is what we will do. Thus saith my decision. And so we do so in such a way that they are now completely defensive. And there is no further conversation. There is no ability for us to, I'm not talking about somebody that agrees with you. I'm talking about like somebody that's on the opposite side of this conversation, the opposite side of a decision like this. You can absolutely take a stand and do it gracefully. You can absolutely stand for what you believe to be right, but you can do it in a way that honors God. I, I, unfortunately, I've had so many conversations over the last Let's call it two years, but even beyond that in my time in ministry, and then beyond those personal conversations, it's just my observation, mostly online, but even beyond that, through other things that I see with my eyes, and that I see that we are doing the right thing the wrong way. We're doing what's right, we're standing for what's right, but when we do so, we do so in such a way that it actually closes down conversation, it closes down relationship, and I'm telling you, you gotta hang with me for next week, because we're gonna talk about taking a stand. But there's such a burden in my heart that we would do the right thing the right way. A couple days ago, I guess, maybe a week or so ago, I read this tweet. It means it was on Twitter, not a little bird told me, right? I read this tweet from Pastor Chris Dorso, and he said this. Cynicism isn't a fruit of the Spirit. Sarcasm isn't a fruit of the Spirit. Being right isn't a fruit of the Spirit. But kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. You can actually be right and be kind about it. You can actually stand firm for something without being mean. If we're Christ followers, and maybe not everybody in the room would proclaim that identity for themselves, but if we are Christ followers, we look to Jesus as the ultimate example for the way that we should live and conduct our lives. And what do we read about Jesus? In John chapter one, verse 14, we read this. The word became flesh. The word there is capital W. This is talking about Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Not half of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. This is a constant struggle, a constant battle, a constant 
pursuing for me to try to be full of grace and truth. Jesus never shied away from the truth. He always spoke the truth. And as he did, sometimes it... Perhaps the greatest picture, the greatest image of Jesus as the embodiment of the fullness of grace and truth is one of my favorite stories. I've shared it a number of times from John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. I mean, the words are right there before us. She was caught in the act. And so they bring her. Scholars have said some, I'm not adding to scripture, but some scholars have supposed that because she was caught in it, perhaps it was a trap, not for her, but for Jesus. That perhaps it was one of the other religious into that environment to be enticed by this woman or to entice this woman to come in so that they could come in and catch her in the act and then bring her to Jesus so that they could test Jesus. They bring Jesus, or they bring this woman to Jesus who's standing there and there's a crowd gathered. They throw this woman down in the middle of a circle and they all gather around and they pick up rocks because this woman should be condemned. She was caught in the act. The law of Moses is very clear about the punishment. It's interesting to me that the man is nowhere to be found, though he was a willing participant. So perhaps it's a trap. They bring this woman. They sit her in the middle. Who knows what she's wearing based on the circumstances of the story? And she's just laying there. These teachers of the law are standing there, ready to give, bring judgment to this moment. And Jesus has a choice. Where do I stand in a moment like that? Do I stand in the circle bringing justice? Or do I kneel with the woman bringing compassion? We see what he did. We know exactly what he did. You can read it for yourself in John chapter 8. Because like these guys knew, this is a tension point. This is a moment that depending on how Jesus answers, the way that Jesus responds Like he's trapped, he's caught. If he says, judge her, stone her, throw the rock. If he keeps the law, where is his compassion? Where is his grace? Where is his mercy that he's been teaching and preaching so much about? But if he doesn't allow her to be stoned, if he doesn't allow her to be killed, if he doesn't allow her to be judged, where is his holiness? Where is his righteousness? What does he stand for as he claims to be the son of God? It's a trap. And Jesus chooses not to move to the exterior Stand in the circle holding the rock of judgment. He chooses to kneel in the dirt with the woman. And then he confronts those who are standing there. And he says to them, hey, you're right. This is the Jeremy paraphrase. This is my favorite version of scripture because it always makes me feel better. He confronts those who are standing there. He says, hey, listen, you are exactly right. She's guilty. Hey, let's do exactly what you're talking about. I'm, I'm in. But let's let he who is without sin cast the first stone. One by one, one of the accounts says the rocks begin to drop from the oldest to the youngest, perhaps the older, having a little more life experience and recognizing that perhaps they've, they've done a few things that they're glad nobody caught them in the act of. Maybe in youthful pride, they didn't really want to drop their rocks till they saw that they might be the only one still standing there holding a rock. And One by one, they walk away until it's just Jesus and this woman. 
And then Jesus is this incredible embodiment of grace and truth. When he looks to this woman and he asks her a question. Woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? Now, I don't know how the woman had conducted herself in the midst of this firing squad. I'm not really sure how she, I assume that there was shame and guilt. I don't know, but I've just always pictured in my head that she was kneeling there, maybe even laying there in the dirt and Jesus was there with her. Maybe she was standing up just staring at them. I don't know. But in my mind's eye, not attempting to add to scripture, I picture her who her head had been down, maybe even her eyes closed, anticipating the pain that was to come for her because of the guilt that she was absolutely guilty of. I picture her then after hearing some of those rocks drop, not really sure what's taking place around her. And so after Jesus asks her the question, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who would condemn you? She just lifts her head just enough to look around and see that they've all left. He said, does anyone condemn you? And she's got to get a full picture of what's taking place around her. And she says, there's, there's no one, Lord. And this is the embodiment of grace and truth when Jesus responds to her. He said, then neither do I condemn you, grace. Go and sin no more, truth. You know what he did not say to her? For those of us that want to stand for the truth, stand for something, stand for what's right, you know what he didn't say to that woman? Thank goodness he did not say, hey, listen, it's okay, whatever you want to do. It's okay, live how you want to live. Like what you're doing, if it feels good, right, great, go, go for it. Like he never justified her sin. He told her to go and sin no more. He called it what it was and he challenged her to something greater. But he did so in a posture of grace. I mean, I don't know how people that would disagree with us would respond if we weren't on the outside throwing rocks and we actually laid down in the dirt with them. But I gotta feel like there would be a little bit more of an openness to conversation if we came with grace and presented truth rather than throwing truth from so far away. It seems like it might be received differently. This is the embodiment of grace and truth. He gave her a reason to live for something more. Go and sin no more. There's purpose for your life. Go and do something. Be better. He called her to something higher. He was right without being wrong. That's what we should all strive for. That we could be right and present it the right way. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to speak the truth. I want to be the truth, the embodiment of grace and truth. How many Christians do we see winning arguments and losing influence with those who are far from God and are closing off themselves to the gospel Because of people who believe the gospel, full of grace and truth. So Daniel was resolute and he was respectful. There was authority that had been placed over him. And so he says, I have resolved in myself not to defile myself. And so he asks permission from the authorities not to defile himself. And this amazing thing happens. This is unbelievable to me. I've never read this until preparing for this series. Verse nine. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. You don't know what's amazing? When we do things God's way, God goes before us. 
God prepares the other person. God prepares that person and softens their heart for a gospel conversation, for truth to be received because we've come at it from a position of grace and humility and compassion. But what we do is we think we have to fight for God instead of God fighting for us. We've positioned ourselves in a place that we are not called to do, not called to be. God turns the hearts of men and women. I do not. You do not turn the hearts of men and women. And so we live in such a way to point people towards an openness to receive all that God would have. I am not speaking of compromise. You've got to resolve something. But then when you resolve it, how do you respond with that? How do you present that information and the decision that has been made within your heart? Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite authors and speakers. He was talking a number of years ago and I was listening to him at a conference and he said this, he was talking about spiritual discipline, spiritual practices. He said, so often what happens is we assume that the spiritual gift or the spiritual, not spiritual gift, the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practice of silence is like going and standing in the woods and listening to nature. He said, and sometimes it is. But he said, often, at least in my own life, the spiritual discipline of silence is choosing not to say something when I could say something. It's learning to allow the Spirit of God to tame my tongue, to clamp my mouth shut. It's in those moments that I'm trusting God to go before me. I'm trusting God to fight the battles that need to be fought. There's a passage in the Old Testament. It's by one of the prophets of the Old Testament. His name is Amos. We don't We don't preach out of Amos very much. Maybe we should. But Amos is really challenging the people of God. And in Amos chapter five, he's rebuking them for their own disobedience, but he's also speaking to them about the events of the days in which they're living. It says this in Ephesians chapter five, verse 13. It says, therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. I think we're living in some evil times right now. And perhaps in the midst of these evil times, we don't need to be prudent to speak so much. We need to be prudent to listen more and to be silent more and to believe that God is the one who fights our battles. Please hear what I'm saying. It's not compromise. It's trust. It's grace. Because Amos goes on in the rest of that book, he goes on to challenge them not to get dragged into the evil that persisted around them. He told them to love what is good and to hate what is evil and to act justly toward everyone that they encountered. There's another prophet of the Old Testament who speaks that same kind of truth. So what are we called to do? Sometimes standing your ground requires of you to speak up. And other times standing your ground requires you to shh because it's the most God-honoring thing in that moment. We see this as another example towards the end of Jesus' life. Jesus has kind of wrapped up his ministry, and he and his disciples are preparing for the showdown. Now, how they're preparing is a little different. Jesus has resolved in himself that this is the will of the Father, He's prayed and prepared his soul. He's submitted his heart to God and what God would have him to do. The disciples still don't understand. Like even after the cross and the resurrection, the disciples are like, okay, is now the time that you're gonna overthrow the government? 
Like, is now the time that we're going to take charge? Like, we signed up for this to kind of be the guys that were with you when you did. Is this, is it when they come to arrest you now? Should we be ready to fight? Like, we're, this is it. Let's do it. Okay, I'm in. And so the guys come. Judas has betrayed him. The officials come. The authorities come. The cops come. Like, they're just showing up to take Jesus. And Jesus is standing there, and he's, he's ready for this to take place. And he allows the events to kind of take place. And so Peter, one of the guys that's there with him, Peter decides, you know what happens in this moment? This is the moment that I shine. This is the moment that I'm stepping up. He grabs a sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. I really want to think that that's how I would respond. I don't know that it is. I'm not really a fighter, but I really feel like if I think like Jesus is the guy, that he's, he's the son of God, everything he said is true. I believe he's the one that's gonna help us to you know, reign in the kingdom. I'm thinking kingdom, new kingdom right here before us, not new kingdom to come. Like I, I wanna think that if I thought that's how the story was playing out and like these guys show up to take my king, my teacher, my rabbi, like I got you, Jesus, give me a sword. I grab it, I'm like, who's up? Wham, chop the guy's ear off. That's what I think I would want to do until I read the rest of the story and realize, whoa, Peter really missed the boat here. There's this amazing part of this story, and this, I don't know why, my brain's funny, but I love this part of the story where Jesus just picks the ear up off the ground and puts it back on the guy, as if that's just like normal happenstance. Like, what did that guy think? Like, guys, I think we've arrested the wrong guy. Like, I, there's something special about this guy. Like, I don't, did you see what, I mean, there's still blood here, but like the ear on. I don't, did, like there's the whole other part in Mark where at the end of this story, like one of the disciples runs away naked. Like we just kind of glaze over that fact. It's like, hey, and there was a naked guy. And this is a cool story. Like really, really great story. You should read it for yourself. But I want to feel like I'm Peter in this story. Like I'm defending Jesus until I actually take my eyes off Peter and look at Jesus. Jesus said to these guys, like, listen, I don't need you to defend me. Don't you know if I was trying to stand up to this that all I had to do was call out to heaven and I would receive all of the authority and the power of the armies of heaven to defend myself? He says this in Matthew 26, verse 52. He says, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. If you try to win worldly arguments with worldly methods, you will get stuck. We are living in spiritual times, fighting spiritual battles. And so what do we do in the midst of that, but embody all that we find in the life and ministry of Jesus? And what do we find? We find that Jesus was arrested and they hauled him off. And he was standing trial before various people of authority over the next few hours. And in one of those places there in Matthew 26, they ask him a question. They're like, hey, are you really the guy you say you are? And can you really do all the things that you say you can do? And Jesus in verse 63 of that passage of Matthew 26, you can go read it for yourself. He just remained silent. You think he was confused about who he was? You think he felt like he wasn't sure if he was getting tricked? That he couldn't answer this question because he wasn't sure what the answer? No, he knew exactly what the truth was. But in some moments it's best to remain silent. You know what he did one verse later? He spoke up. In response to another question, he answered it. Because sometimes even when you know the truth, you speak up. And sometimes when you know the truth, you remain silent. And the difference in those moments is us 
leaning in to the spirit that James tells us that God jealously desires the spirit he placed inside of us, the spirit of God will help us to know how to respond. And next week as we dig into this idea of standing firm and standing up and what that actually looks like, like this week we don't wanna glaze over the fact that we wanna be right by being right. We, we don't wanna be right and do it wrong. We stand for truth. We stand for who Christ is. But don't, don't mistake this truth. He doesn't need you to defend him with the sword. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. You draw the sword in arguments like this and in moments like this, you are going to be held to the results of what sword fights look like. And that's not what we've been called to. So here's how we wanna try to close our time. I wanna give you three questions Maybe you jot these down on a piece of paper. You throw these in your phone. Maybe these become some prayer points for you this week. These are what I'm calling grace and truth questions. So that all of us, as we prepare our hearts for next week and how to stand firm in a culture of compromise, that we would meditate on these types of questions to really search our souls. The first of these questions is this. Do I know the truth? Do I know what the truth is? Capital T. Not the truth someone tells me, the absolute truth of God's word and what God has spoken to my heart and my life. Do I know what the truth is? You gotta stand for something. If you don't stand for it, like what are we even doing? You gotta know what the truth is. Question number two, can I communicate the truth with grace to someone who doesn't believe it? Do I have the ability to be grace-filled, full of grace in my presentation of truth to someone who does not hold to the same truth that I hold to? I want to embody Jesus in my interactions with unbelievers and those who are challenging the truth that I hold to so dearly. Can I speak that gracefully? And number three, in my attempt to be grace-filled, do I compromise the truth? There's usually two camps. The truthers, right? I'm a truther. I've talked about this before. It's like grace can come. Jesus can give that. I'm giving the truth by God. I don't care. I'm, this is the truth. The truth will set you free. This is the truth and the truth and the truth. And there are definitely moments when it needs to be truth, truth, truth. Jesus did that in some moments. But it's like, well, I don't want to upset anybody. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think maybe you should, you know, okay, have you thought about this? And we walk away going, I don't really know if I actually said what I believe right there. And we get stuck in this. And so these challenges, these questions really cause us to search our hearts and to really dig into, do I know the truth? Do I compromise truth in trying to be grace-filled or can I speak the truth in grace to someone who doesn't believe, who doesn't agree? Is it possible? It is absolutely possible, but it's probably a part of the shaping and molding of what God is challenging each one of us to become more and more like the image of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm gonna ask you just for a moment, bow your head and close your eyes as we conclude our time together today. Just a moment between you and the Lord. Nobody's looking around, nobody's gonna come and lay hands on you in this moment. It's just really kind of reflection. I'm not even asking you to respond to anything right now. Maybe you just search your heart and say, God, where am I at in this? Am I more of a truther, more of a gracer? somewhere in between, but I don't really find that balance of who you're calling me to be. 
Do I find myself around the circle holding rocks more often than I find myself in the dirt next to those who are accused? Where am I at? I want to be a gospel person. I want to be a grace-filled truth person. And if you would say to me today, Jeremy, for me, I know that I'm not even in relationship with who you're talking about. According to scripture, what you're presenting here, I'm a, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I'm not in relationship. I'm far from God in some form. And today I want to end that. I want to ask him to forgive my sins and to be the Lord of my life. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? We want to pray for you. Thank you so much. If you're watching online, let us know you're responding in that way so we can pray for you this week. And now if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, whichever side I find myself on, I'm more grace-filled or more truthful. I want to be full of grace and truth. I want to be able to do what God's asking of me. And maybe sometimes that means talking less, shouting less. Wherever I find myself in this equation, I just want God to help me to be more full of grace and truth. If that's you, my hand is lifted. You can lift it along with me right now. I'm going to ask God to help us. God, there's a heaviness on me. For whatever reason, in this moment, we've already had one service and one response and time between services, but in this moment right now, God, there's a heaviness on me for this moment not to pass us by. God, I pray for every person who's acknowledged their need for you to be the Lord of their life, the forgiver of their sins. God, you're changing eternity right now. And so God, we ask you to do that. We don't move, we celebrate with heaven for the decisions that are being made. And so God, thank you for that. But God, for people in this room who say, hey, it's not a salvation issue for me. I believe I'm in relationship with God. I just want my life to reflect him more. I'm doing the best that I can, but I wanna be grace-filled and truth-filled. I want to stand for something, but I want to love well. God, would you convict us? Help us. Forgive us where we've gotten it wrong. And strengthen us to do it as we move forward. Thank you for those who lifted their hands. Thank you for those whose hearts responded in some way as well, in the room and online. God, we ask you to be with us as we leave this place go about our day, go about our week, and bring us back together next week to hear the conclusion of this idea and this thought that you've laid upon my heart for our church family for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.